An epiphany is one of those things that happens when you have a duh, I'm such an idiot moment in life, or when you suddenly get it. And the, the suddenly get it feeling that that aha moment often happens in certain types of movies. You get to the end of the movie, The Usual Suspects, Fight Club, Interstellar, or I, I remember as a kid, the original Planet of the Apes, some of you who are young enough don't know this, but seeing Planet of the Apes, the first one on TV, and then it gets to the end and there's the Statue of Liberty in the sand, and I'm like, no way, <laughs> right, you know. Some good movies reveal this story that you're trying to figure out what is this, what's going along, and then all of a sudden they unravel the entire past. And then you think, oh, now I see where all these pieces fit in. The epiphany and the season that we're in is actually one of the themes that, that transcends all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the accounts of Jesus. And what you have in the accounts of Jesus that are recorded by these early disciples and followers of Jesus is them writing after they've had all of that unravel for them. After they finally get it, they've had their, duh, I was such an idiot. Remember how that happened. And so what they do is they give you an account of Jesus that is looking back over his life. And maybe it's not every detail, but for them it's all the parts that were necessary for you to understand how it came about that they understood Jesus to be who he said he was. In other words, each of the Gospels is in and of itself an epiphany, a revealing moment upon moment. And yet, as you, read the, as you read any of the Gospels, if you read through them, you'll find that the people who actually meet Jesus have a really hard time understanding who he is and what he's about. The people who spend the most time with him, his disciples, his apostles, they are constantly confused about who Jesus is. The religious leaders, the guys who should have known best how to study the scriptures and identify a really good religious guy, they had no idea what to do with Jesus. The crowds one moment worshiped him and the next moment tried to toss him off a cliff. The people who got Jesus were the poor, the sick, the sinful, the outcast. Those closest to him, the smartest, the crowds, remain clueless to the end. Matthew, in the gospel that we're looking at today, looks back with that, oh, no duh, as he's writing the stories about Jesus that he saw and observed or heard from his close friends. And so whether it's the passage we're looking at today or the ones we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, what Matthew is doing and what he wants us to do is to see who Jesus is because of what Jesus does, and then to ask the question ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? And what are you going to do with him? Epiphany, the church season that we're in, for those of you who don't come from it, is a, is a season between Christmas and Lent, those weeks leading up to Easter. And the, the basic theme of it, or the, the, the imagery of it, is about light. Advent is a time of contrasting light and darkness. But Epiphany is a season of light piercing or driving out the darkness. It involves the revelation of Jesus as seen in the Gospels, but it's also the hope of the Gospel going to the ends of the earth. And so over the next seven weeks, I guess, through February, we're going to be looking at the epiphany of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew specifically. If you were here last week, I said we were going to be in the lectionary, but I, I, we're starting in the lectionary this week. 
And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in Matthew and hitting on the different episodes of how Jesus is revealed to be who he is. So at the point at which Jesus is revealed in Matthew, we are in a point in, in the Christian Bible that's, that's the beginning of the New Testament. And in ancient history, even in Jewish history, there was a period when the voice of God stopped. They had God with them in Genesis and through Moses and the law. And as the kings established Israel as a nation, and then they had prophets as they fell into sin and ended up returning back to Israel. But for a period of several hundred years, the voice of God was absent. During this time, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God in the center of the temple was gone. They rebuilt the temple, but they no longer had that ark. And during that season, hundreds of years, they did not hear from God. There was no prophet, no voice, no one knew where God was. He seemed to be absent from his people. Until all of a sudden, signs appear. An angel comes to a young peasant guy and his betrothed wife says, you will give birth to a son, and he will save his people from their sin, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then all those things happen around Christmas that we just celebrated a couple of weeks ago, and then nothing, a decade of silence, until at age 12, we have one account of Jesus and his family going to the temple for one of the religious ceremonies. And Jesus stays behind. His family doesn't know that he's behind it in Jerusalem because he wants to spend time in the temple learning and spending time with his father, God. And Mary treasures this up in her heart, it says. And then nothing for 20 years. Nothing. Silence. Again. Until John the Baptist comes on the scene. In all four Gospels, John the Baptist comes on the scene and causes trouble. He was a popular prophet like a celebrity preacher, but with a lot of anger as well. People were scared of him, and they wanted to follow him. If they had had a democracy, he would have been elected as president pretty quickly. He was the sort of person who pushed all the buttons and challenged everybody. And he went around preaching a message that nobody liked. Repent. You are sinners. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And he baptized any who wanted to be washed for the cleansing of their sins, saying, I want to renew my covenantal relationship with God the Father. But he pointed ahead and said, somebody is coming after me who is greater than me. And then one day that somebody shows up. <coughs> Jesus comes in chapter 3 in verses 13, 14, and 15 and says, I'm here to be baptized, John. And John says, no way. I cannot baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. You are the one I was pointing to, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. This was very awkward, unusual, and embarrassing. We actually gloss over the fact that Jesus says, hey, baptize me, and John's like, no, I'm not cool with that. But the readers and those first people that were there understood what was going on. That was a status culture where position mattered. If Jesus was the greater, if he truly was the Savior, he could not have been baptized, anointed by John. It had to be the other way around. This was unusual, embarrassing. There is no way Matthew, uh, as well as Mark, 
John and Luke would have included this account in this way if it wasn't true. Because the first readers would have said, nope, this makes no sense. But Jesus says in verse 15, let's do so so that all righteousness is fulfilled. The commentators agree that this isn't Jesus saying, I'm sinful and need to be washed, but rather, but rather, it's Jesus, Jesus identifying with John's mission that he had been engaged in for a couple of years, his mission of preparing the people through repentance and baptism for the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, yes, everything John has done is right. By being baptized by John, he's, he's affirming John's ministry. And, and this is Jesus obeying God the Father because God's plan was to inaugurate Jesus' public ministry through this baptism, to publicly confirm Jesus. So Jesus, hearing the Father, says, I will be baptized by John. So John does it. He baptizes Jesus in the Jordan, but this baptism is a little different than the others. We read in verse 16 and 17, in verse 16, and then Jesus was baptized, and immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The heavens being opened in that ancient world, either pagan or Jewish, was an acknowledgement that God was doing something new, revealing something, about to make something known. And then the Spirit descends upon Jesus. It's not that Jesus didn't have the Spirit with him or in him. It's the anointing, like King David was anointed with oil by Samuel to say, you are the chosen one. God anoints Jesus, not with oil, but with the Spirit, saying, you are the chosen one. Begin your ministry. And then we get the voice, the voice that has been absent for several hundred years, not speaking through an angel or a messenger or a prophet, but the voice of God himself. And the very first thing God says after hundreds of years of silence is, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There's Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This message is, a, is citing the Old Testament. It's citing Psalm 2, the commentators agree. In Psalm 2, verse 7, the psalmist writes, this is my son. The whole rest of the psalm, and in, in that Jewish world, if you cited a portion of a psalm, you were actually citing the whole psalm. Everyone knew it. So the father says, this is my son. Psalm 2 was an enthronement psalm said and declared publicly when somebody was going to become the new king. This might have been read aloud, publicly declared, when Solomon became king after David. This is my son. He is the king. It was a psalm that actually, if you read the rest of Psalm 2, is a very challenging psalm about how this king, this king will be judge of all nations and will rule the entire earth, and everyone must come and bow down before this king, my son. The other half of this phrase that the Lord gives to Jesus comes from Isaiah 42. 
which is a psalm prophesying the servant of God, the Messiah to come. One of these psalms at the end of Isaiah that looks forward to the suffering servant coming to be the Savior. It says in, verse, in chapter 42, verse 1, This is my servant, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Slightly different wording, but when you go from the Greek and the English and the Hebrew, it's with whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. And the rest of that entire song, that, that passage that, that the Lord is citing there says, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations, light to the nations, justice to the nations, opening the eyes of the blind, bringing out prisoners, those who are in darkness. Now, don't jump too far ahead for us. One of the things that we have to see here is what God is doing in publicly declaring Jesus as this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We sit 2,000 years later, and many in here, most of you, are probably Christians who already buy into, yeah, Jesus is God's son, the beloved, yada, yada, yada. But in that first instance, as John is baptizing him and others are witnessing it, what they see is a peasant with, from Nazareth who walks into the water and comes up, and a voice declares, this is my son, with whom I am well pleased. This is an absolute epiphany that made no sense. They didn't just go, ah, now we get the whole rest of the story. In fact, they're all confused from here on out. But think from Jesus' perspective about what he is hearing from the Father. God declares Jesus to be his beloved son, the chosen servant, the savior and king. The one in whom all the hopes and longings of Israel are realized. And this is Jesus' identity. And notice this, we actually don't know um, how much self-awareness Jesus had growing up of who he was. But something is very clear from this and from other stuff as you read the Gospels is Jesus is constantly going to the Father to understand who he is and what he is called to do. Okay? So Jesus is constantly receiving his identity and his purpose and calling from the Father. And his identity is you are my beloved son, my chosen servant. In you I delight, in you I am well pleased. And what does Jesus do with this identity after he's baptized? He does not go back to Nazareth and keep constructing houses saying, okay, good, at least Jesus, at least God likes me. I'm Jesus, the one God likes. I'm good, as long as I'm good, I'm good. Rather, what does he do with this identity? He gives himself away. When you get an identity, you start giving yourself away. He obeys God completely, and he loves everyone else fully, laying his life down even to the end. His identity, son of God, chosen, my beloved, in you I am well pleased, 
reveals, leads to, and drives him towards his calling and vocation, which was not to build houses. The same is true for each of us. Who we are will equal what we do. Who we are will reveal, lead to, and drive what we do. So who are you? Or who do you think you are? You know, if you do not have an identity, if you're not sure who you are, you will look everywhere for it. You'll be constantly swayed. One year you'll be this, the next year that, chasing after different things. Fragile, defensive, constantly needing affirmation. A kid who has no identity can be bullied. A kid who has an identity can't be bullied. They know who they are, the bully knows that too. Most of you in here, because you're from Northern Virginia, have an identity. Our modern way of constructing an identity is not to go to the Father and have it revealed to us, it's to turn inwards. You need to find yourself. Become who you are or who you think you are. And so we will build an identity on whatever we are good at or whatever we value most. But the problem is, even though somebody without an identity can be easily swayed and they're fragile and defensive and they can be bullied, somebody who has a modern identity usually is on the verge of slavery or tyranny. We will either become enslaved to our grades or approval or romantic love or whatever we're building our identity on or we'll become a tyrant because of it. We must achieve, we must win, we must get and protect the source of our identity. You easily become ruthless, vicious with anyone who gets in the way of your career, or your kid's happiness, or whatever it is on which your identity is built. Why do we keep talking about identity here at Christ Church Vienna? We, we've actually done it a lot. If you've been here over the past couple of years, we talk about it all the time. One of the reasons I, I think, and we're going to keep coming back to it, is because I think it is the issue of the day. See, when Jesus was walking around in the first century in Palestine and Jerusalem, identity was not the issue. Everyone had an identity. They knew where it came from. It was given to them by birth. In Jesus' day, the issues had to deal with religion and religiousness and the religious leaders and law and how you did moral law. It had to do with nationality. Are you Jewish? Are you Gentile? Are you a Roman citizen? And it had to do with status. How do you hold and maintain and gain status and honor in a community? These are things that matter very little here in the West. Jesus, if he was coming today, would not be necessarily talking about religious law obedience. Most people in America don't really care about that. Instead, we care about freedom, liberty, doing what I want, fame, being known. Our issues are not nationality. They are race. And sexuality, and gender, human identity issues. Who am I? 
How do I know who I am? Jesus does not look inward to find his identity. Nor does he look outward at what he is doing. I'm a carpenter. He looks upward to the Father. He receives an identity from the Father. And we receive ours through Jesus. In the book of Galatians, Paul is talking to a bunch of Christians who were Gentiles, not Jewish people, and they had they didn't actually have identity issues, they had status issues, but there's a translation that happens here, okay? They thought they were outsiders because they were not Jewish, they needed to follow the religious law, they did not have the right nationality, they were not insiders, and therefore they had no status. But what Paul says to reorient and affirm the gospel to these Gentiles in Galatia actually has a lot to do with what is happening through Jesus to us that begins by being revealed in his baptism. In Galatians 3.26, we read, In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is writing to this group of Gentiles struggling with status and where they fit in and whether they were you know, measuring up. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Not by being Jewish, not by following the law, not by birth order. You are all sons of God through faith. Now that, that phrasing sons is challenging for us in the modern world because we hear that and we think that sounds very kind of patriarchal, male-oriented. We're sons, what about daughters? Why doesn't it say daughters? The English Standard Version, which is translating this, actually in their preface says at times they chose to keep the language gender-specific because of the connotations that are applied with it. At other times, they say sons and daughters, or children, or people. But in some specific cases, it's important, and here it's important. Here it's important because what's being implied is the sort of rights, status, and inheritance that only sons could have. In that ancient world, whether it was the Greek world or the Jewish world, only males could own property. Only males had rights. Only males could inherit, and in your inheritance and property and rights was your status and honor in the community. So actually, what Paul is doing here is incredibly liberating and powerful and profound. And it becomes clear two verses later when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It's not that you're not Jewish or not female or not male or not, you know, it's that it doesn't matter before God. You are all sons of God. That had incredible, incredible uplifting power to a woman in that ancient world who had no rights, could never inherit to a slave who was as low of a status person in any community that ever existed. Nothing was your future. And this was a declaration that you have a future. So don't dismiss language in the Bible if it, modern ears find it uncomfortable. 
But also don't get hung up on one image. Son and sonship is not the only image. Remember this, the destiny of the church of all Christians is to be the bride of Christ, the female bride of Christ. You all, we all in Christ are sons. And one day we will all be Christ's bride. So who are you? You and I are sons of God. Now, the hard part with that is we would say, wait, only Jesus, only Jesus is the son of God, right? But jumping back to Galatians, a verse that I didn't read in there, Galatians 3.27 says, all who are baptized have put on Christ. You're wearing Christ, you're clothed in Christ. That ancient world, the clothing that you wore determined your position and status. A prince wore princely clothes. A carpenter wore carpenter's clothes. A slave wore slave's clothes. And Paul is saying, you have put on Christ. That's what you're wearing. That's what you, what everyone sees you and says, oh, you are Christ. And then in Galatians 2.20, a little bit earlier, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You tie these things two together. And Paul, Paul had been a murderer. He had been a moralistic, religious bigot who murdered and persecuted Christians. His past was a horrible past. And yet he says, I wear Christ. When God looks at me, he sees Christ. In other words, when God looks at Paul, he doesn't say murderer. Moralistic jerk. He says, Jesus. He looks at Paul and says, oh, hi, Jesus. He looks at Paul the murderer and says, hi, my son, my chosen, my servant in whom I delight. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, all that can be said of Jesus Christ can be said of you. You are my beloved. You are my son, my daughter, my child. In you I am well pleased. So how do we take advantage of this? How do we live into this Jesus-given gospel identity in Christ? Three very obvious things. It's scripture, prayer, and preaching. But we go to scripture for this, to find out who Jesus is. When you read about Jesus, if you read about Jesus in the scriptures, would you say that he was a failure? An adulterer, a liar, a coward, a porn addict, unworthy, a jerk, a loser. And why do you say that about yourselves? You go to the scriptures find out who Jesus is and what God says about Jesus. Because that's what God says about you. And then you go in prayer and say, God, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
and listen. God has names for you. He has an identity for you. And if that word or phrase or identity can be said of Jesus, or or actually could describe God, it can be said of you. And then preach the gospel to yourself every day and constantly. This is who Jesus is, therefore this is what God says about me. Otherwise, Satan will feed you lies. That recurring thing inside your head that you are just a failure, an adulterer, a porn addict, a liar, a coward, unworthy. Or it'll be Satan feeding your ego. You're awesome because you have accomplished so much. You're great because you have a lot in your bank account. You're beautiful, therefore you are worthy. If it can be said of Jesus, it comes from God. When your identity is in Christ, when your identity is bound up in Christ, you have confidence. The confidence that you are loved and valued and cannot lose it. But you also have incredible humility because none of it came from you. It's not your accomplishments. It's not, your, it's not me saying, gosh, I'm pretty good looking. I'm athletic, I'm smart, I'm talented, I've done a lot of things. It's simply Jesus. My identity comes from Jesus. So I am humbled, but because it comes from Jesus, I am confident. And then you live out of that in Christ identity. You know what happens when your identity is in Christ? You hunger for God. You desire to follow and obey God in everything, in everything. You don't just go around saying what's fun, what's quick, what's easy, nor constantly justifying the things that you're doing. You don't diminish what scripture says that you find challenging. You say, God, I hunger for you and I submit my life to follow and obey you wherever that leads. When your identity is in Christ, you hunger for God in every way. And you have a passion, a passion for those who don't know this to be true in their lives. You have a passion for the lost and the broken and those in darkness. And you give yourself like Jesus did so that others will know God's love. The most missional people are the ones who most fully find their identity in Christ. In contrast, I've found many inward-focused Christians more interested in their next retreat, more interested in their own devotional life, more interested in kind of getting something, and they haven't found their identity in Christ. Or they would be driven outward. Identity drives calling. An identity in God, in Christ, pushes you outward. And what you think you are will equal what you will do in life. God wants you to hear who you are, how he sees you, and his names for you and to live out of that. And this is what God says about you, if your faith is in Christ. You are my child. You are my son. 
You are my daughter. You are my beloved. I delight in you. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, our Father, you sent your Son, Jesus, not just to set us free from our sins, but to give us life to the full, to know who we are in you, to live in the foretaste of eternity even now. Give us the faith in your Son to see in him what you see in us, your love and devotion and value of us, your children. In Jesus' name we pray.